We're going to talk today uh, as we continue uh, this vein of freedom, freedom in Christ. What does that mean? It means that in a relationship with Christ, your life should take on a sense of liberation. There should be a freedom from anxiety, freedom from uh, even our own selves. Sometimes in our, our own lives, we're our own worst enemies. In a relationship with Christ that's evolving and developing, freedom becomes much more prevalent than bondage does, than addiction, than habits, than cyclical behavior, than cyclical relational behavior, and things that we get caught up in. He teaches us how to live, and he also teaches us how to reverse the ways we should not have been living, and keeps us free in the process, okay? And forgiveness is one of those areas where freedom is, de- is dependent upon the presence of forgiveness. If you don't have the forgiveness of God, you're not going to experience the freedom that he wants for you. If you don't extend forgiveness to others, you have the tendency maybe to build up bitterness in your own hearts, okay? If, if uh, you don't receive forgiveness, that's a problem too because there's plenty of that going around from God to you and from others to you. I'm gonna be one of those speakers that is probably, I don't know where I land in the statistics, I'm not a big fan of self-forgiveness. I figure if God has forgiven you, nothing else needed to be added to that forgiveness to make it complete, like your forgiveness of yourself. If he's forgiven you, I'm thinking it's pretty much done deal, I don't need to add to that. Some people differ on that, I don't know, but forgive me. For bringing it up. (laughs) All right, here's the context. Christ is on the cross. You know the story. And he's already made his way to the cross. He's already severely wounded. He's already severely wounded. Uh, And the uh, crucifixion begins. Uh, He has scars already. He's already been arrested. And he's already been betrayed four times in one night. It's a bad week. He's been wrongly accused. He's been abandoned by those who love him. And he's been verbally abused and mocked already. He's been scourged and his body's been mutilated. Okay, here we go. Now we're going to put nails in him and put him on a cross. So let's read, let me read this to you. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers were, were sneer, even sneered at him. They said, he saves others. Let him save himself. If he's God, the Messiah, the chosen one, you know, let him save himself. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Man, save yourself. And there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Three times they say, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. All right. Let's break it down. Two other men came with Jesus. First of all, let me correct that. Yes, he was a man. And he was fully man. And he operated within the physical and emotional limitations that you and I operate in. He was fully man, but unlike the other two men, he was fully God. This is the difference. Two men accompanied him who was a man, but also 
God. Had to come in the form of a man incarnate to represent us and die as a man so as to pay our debt for the sin and the fallenness of mankind. Two other men, okay. Come to the place of the skull called Golgotha. Many of you have been there with Angie and I and other people. And it, the place of the skull. What does it say in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity, hostility between the seed of the woman and between Satan. And what will happen to Satan? He will have his head crushed and the heel of the Savior will be bruised. At the place of the skull, Satan is defeated. Golgotha. All right? And he's crucified. He hangs on a tree. One on his right and a cr criminal on his right and a criminal on his left. How many of you still have a sense of humor when it comes to politics? Raise your hand. Okay, me and you. That we're the only ones that have a sense of humor about politics. So this is for you. Not much has changed. We still have a criminal on the left and a criminal on the right. His father, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> and you know what, I'm, as I was preparing, I'm not totally convinced that was the Lord. I'm not totally convinced. <laughs> it says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a key verse there, we'll come back to that. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's a prophecy fulfilled in Psalm 22 and 18. They're dividing up his clothes. He's by this time fulfilled close to 200 prophecies, messianic prophecies spoken of him, of his life, his birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. All of those have been, we're at the last remaining prophecies to be fulfilled. And the people stood there watching. The rulers sneered, the soldiers mocked, and they said, he saved us, let him save himself if he's got the Messiah, the chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself, he says. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Here's the problem. And make this, don't make this your problem. These people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what a Messiah is. A Messiah does not save himself. A Messiah does not spare himself. Oftentimes, the Messiah does not defend himself. He's a lamb before the shears that's silent. They're looking for one who would be selfish enough to save himself. They're looking for someone other than our Messiah. They're looking for one who is egotistic, self-centered, non-empathetic, might want to save other people, but save himself in the process. That's not who we worship this morning. We worship one who came not to save himself, but listen, to save you, every individual sitting here whose hairs on your head he's numbered, whose days he's numbered, he knows when you come in and you go out. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He has no inkling to save himself. It's not part of his mission, it's not even part of his thought life, it's not even part of his actions. In fact, he turned his face like flint to Jerusalem to do what? Everything but save himself. They, they're missing it. And they're mocking who they think he is, not who he actually is.
They're mocking their version of him. Which, by the way, if you're out of fellowship with Christ or you've never given your life to him, on some level, you too are mocking your version of him, not truly who he is. If you truly knew him for who he is, you would not mock him. You wouldn't use his name in vain. You wouldn't blaspheme his name. You wouldn't spend a life ignoring him, pushing him away, rationalizing him. You would, you would not blame people in the Christian circles for the lot, your lot in life. You wouldn't blame God for your lot in life. If you truly knew him for who he was, you'd know he came not to save himself, but to save you. If only these people had the opportunity to get to know him, all of their disparaging remarks, their spittle, their cursing, their scourging, their, their crucifixion never would have happened. But at the same time, it was prophetically promised. So you find these people in a dire situation. They can't win and they can't lose, but all they need to do, because they're given another chance called the resurrection, is recognize him for who he is. And isn't that just like the Lord to give you another chance, another chance? He says, Father, forgive them. The thing about Christianity and the thing about our Lord is He has a father. He has one to submit himself to, subject himself to his authority. He sets the model for us. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our Lord, because of the Trinity, has one to answer to. He has one to instruct him. He has one to actually wrestle with over the cup of suffering. Our Lord isn't dictatorial, our Lord is submissive to the authority of his Father, and this is what makes him Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me has to be said on the cross because he becomes one with our sin. Guess what? The Father has to turn away. The Father is pristine, without sin, is holy, is pure, is undefiled. He can't be one with his Son at that moment. He has to turn his face from him. This Savior came not to save himself, and he came even with the knowledge of losing temporarily, as it might be, fellowship with his Father. Amazing. Amazing. And I don't think we know how amazing that is until we experience that in eternity. Father, he says, forgive them. Oh, my. He's got this elevated viewpoint on a cross. He's looking down on everybody. And he sees basically a picture of all humanity. Oh, there's the mockers. There's the insecure. There's the murderers. I got the criminals. I got the blasphemers. I got the people sneering in leadership. I got people doing absolutely nothing, acting like nothing's going on. They're just standing there, watching, doing nothing, saying nothing, not taking a stand. He's got all of humanity represented in front of him. In that moment, he's got the sin in all its various flavors, like Baskin Robbins of hell. He's got it all right there in front of him, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He's got the people that are salivating over his blood coming out of his body, whose job it is is to execute people for a living. 
in the midst of all of that mire and all that darkness and all that seditious violence and scheming and verbal abuse in his wicked state, all he could say, what else is he going to say? Father, got to talk to him first about it. <laughs> Forgive them. What? Is that not the last thing on anybody's mind at that moment? Is that not the absolute last thing on any human being's mind on earth who could have processed that whole scene? Forgive them. Then he follows it up with this. They know not what they do. Said another way, don't hold them accountable just yet. They don't know who I am. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know to whom they're doing it. They haven't quite got it yet. They haven't followed me for three years. Can we temporarily suspend this horrific scene? At least give these people another chance to see the resurrected Christ. One of the centurions didn't need it. Surely this must be the Son of God. Somehow the Holy Spirit broke through in the middle of all that darkness. Just give them another chance, Father. Just give them another chance. I personally have been the guy who mocked and blasphemed and sneered and stood there and, and, and listened to the God squad in college try to lead me to Christ, lock me in the car, get me to pray a prayer, do something, see some movement in this guy. Let's get some movement. When is he going to stop drinking? When is he going to stop smoking pot? When is this guy going to come to terms with who God is? I've been there. I've rationalized. I've, I've seen it all. I've been in that crowd. Thank God he had the dispensation to say, Father, give this kid another chance. Give him just a little more time. If not, forgive him. Just, just give him a little more time. Let, him, let the Spirit move on this kid. That kind of grace, this side of the resurrection, how marvelous. It's, it's just, it's delectable. It's, it's incredible. You're here today and you're out of fellowship with him or you don't have a him as your Lord. There is every right in everything that is righteous and just to hold you accountable for your sin this very moment. Every right. The wrath, the wrath of God the wrath of God is some punitive club coming down on you. The wrath of God is him stepping one more step away from you and allowing you the very freedom he gifted you to have and the freedom to reject him and uh, blaspheme him. He gives you that freedom. The wrath of God is him stepping back one more step and saying, all right, you have that much more room to do what it is you want to do. You want to keep doing that? I'll withhold myself yet again. I'll give you even more space to make me out to who I'm not to talk about me as though I, I am, but I'm not. I'll give you that space. Only a savior would do that. Only a loving savior whose very personhood, very being is to redeem you would allow you to come to the end of yourself by stepping away, stepping away, stepping away. But my friend, if you're here today and don't know him, he only steps away so often. And I'm gonna tell you something. Having been here this morning and hearing this message, 
There's less of an ambiguity of who he is and there's more of a clarity being given to you who he is and with that clarity comes a decision, a responsibility. I say that in love, that's not a threat. Sometimes it's better not to go to church. If someone actually preaches the word and you hear it, you have a better knowledge. After a while, forgive him, Father, but then it's gonna be, but then again, he does know what he's doing. He does know what he's doing. Don't allow yourself to get there. Choose him. Surrender to him. Let him pursue you as you pursue him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, for they do not know what they're doing. Do you really know what you're doing with your faith? It's a fair question. You really know what you're doing? Do you understand? I know we have fun and we celebrate a lot and we're about the only religion in the world that smiles and laughs and dances and acts like fools. But do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know the heavy side of our faith? Do you wallow in the despair that's in this very community of people wanting to kill themselves? Do you know how serious it is, this what we talk about? You know that there's people out, a tent for every one of you, there's 25 out there who are in despair and sorrow, hopeless, wandering, aiming, trying to stay ahead of God, trying to manufacture something of joy in their life, trying to pursue or a possession or something. They're all out there. They know how serious it is. Do we? Do we? Oh, yeah, people got a nice shine on their face, and they look fine, and they're living their life, and they're on your croquet team. Fine. But what's going on in there? What's going on in there? You see, Christ no longer hangs on a cross. He hangs on people's necks. I see crucifixes all the time around people's necks. And I watch how many of them are living, and I almost wish we didn't do that. It creates this false impression. Somehow a piece of jewelry is, covers a multitude of sins. Well, he does, not the jewelry. We're going to live our life out in front of people, and Christ is going to live his life through us. He's going to well up by his spirit within us like rivers of living water. Do we know what we're doing and how we're living? And are we living in keeping with the one who's living in us? There's a couple of things that have been troublesome to me about this crucifixion and Resurrection. I always wonder, why don't they make such a big deal out of Lazarus' re uh, resurrection? And why don't they make a big deal out of the widow at Nain's son resurrected? No one, no one questions whether they were resurrected. What about the little 12-year-old girl? I say to you, little girl, get up. Why did anybody argue whether that ever happened or not? Why is the resurrection of Christ the only one that everyone has a doubt about? Why is he, everyone skeptical about that? And why does everybody have an answer whether that actually happened or not? Or whether it was even a historical event? Well, plenty of people wrote about it in history. They didn't even believe in him and wrote about it as historians. It was a historical event, but why did we have such an issue with whether, and then we come up with these, to be honest with you, I think they're kind of cheesy. 
proof that he was resurrected. Oh, someone stole the body or everyone hallucinated. Yeah, that's what it was. Or he wasn't dead, he just fainted. Woke up three days later. Yeah, that's it. You know, if I was sitting here today and I didn't know Christ, I'd want somebody to give me some kind of logical explanation how they in their life now give their life to something that they've never seen before or heard before since. I'd, I'd want someone to give me an answer as to why you believe that this man, okay, he died, but how, resurrected? Come on. Well, I'll give you some reasons. They're logical. It's data. It's processable. Yeah. His brothers thought he was a nut job. Said he was beside himself. That to me sounds like schizophrenic. His brothers, James and Judas and all the rest of them, they didn't like, they didn't like the idea went around telling people he was God. How'd you like to live in a two-bedroom, one-bath home in Nazareth with a guy that shared a bunk with you who says he's God? Well, James had a problem with it. I, all the people in his hometown had a problem with it. Prophet is without honor in his hometown. But I'll tell you what, 50 days later, this guy James who didn't like his brother or thought he was crazy, he soon became the bishop of the church of Jerusalem, was willing to die for his faith. Somewhere between the crucifixion and Pentecost, something happened to that guy, and I don't know a whole lot in history records other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think his big brother flat out rose from the dead. I think he spent the majority of 40 days with him. I think he wrote the first book of the New Testament. I don't have another explanation, do you? I don't know why Thomas died in a cave in India carrying the gospel all the way across to Southeast Asia. The only explanation I could come up with, yeah, he doubted a little bit. He may have touched his side. He was convinced he was resurrected. He, he died and was martyred for his faith on the other side of the world. I don't think you do that for something that never happened. Saul the Tarsus was the most educated, pious, arrogant Pharisee on the face of the earth. He ran into the risen Lord on his way to Damascus. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. He was swearing out murderous threats and had permission to do so. He stood there when Stephen's last words were the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Had to irritate him. He was struck blind. It wasn't until he was blind that he actually saw that Jesus is who he says he was. I don't have another explanation of why all of a sudden he becomes the number one apostle in writing and carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. Do you? hallucinations. Come on. When the two people hallucinated at the same time had the same hallucinations. Don't insult me. I'm telling you right now, there are people's lives, in addition to the ones that are in here right now, who have been radically changed through trajectory of their heart, their mind, their desires, their dreams. Their vices are gone. Their fears are gone. Their shame is gone. They're not hiding from anyone anymore. They could be themselves. They could be transparent. They could be vulnerable. They could be a child of God. They don't have to know everything. They don't have to go everywhere. They don't have to read everything. They were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who rose from the dead? I'm a living evidence of that. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Well, you think this is some sort of game in here. You came in here without Christ. This is no game. It's not a game. This is life. This is death. This is eternity. I'm, I'm telling you this because I love you. Forgive. 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 Jesus' words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How many of you play golf? Well, never mind. You have to raise your hands. Basically everybody. 
What do you do when you hit a ball? Well, forget you, you don't do that. What do I do when I hit an errant ball that's headed for another foursome? Four! Why do I yell four? I'm giving someone an advance notice that they're about to get hit in the head. Right? Four, F-O-R-E. If I have four knowledge, what does that mean? I have knowledge of something before it ever comes to pass. I have an inside track on something that I know something about something that's gonna happen that maybe you don't. I have foreknowledge. So when it happens, I'm not surprised you are. People in the CIA or the FBI, they all these people know that. Something's gonna come to pass, it's gonna pop up in the news because they have foreknowledge. We have forbearance. What does that mean? We have the ability before something irritates us to be long-suffering and patient and not overreact, to process something, to have poise. I wish, boy, I wish there was more poise in the body of Christ. We're not startled. We're not shaken. We can deal with things. We're long-suffering. We have forbearance, forbearance, for, foreknowledge, forbearance, forgiveness. What does this mean? Hey, listen, haven't we lived long enough to know? Haven't you been married long enough to know your spouse is going to irritate you next week? Don't you have the foreknowledge of that? Do you have the forbearance? You don't think your 20-something-year-old is not going to get on your nerves the next three weeks? What fantasy are you living in? We know things in advance. And one thing that we know is people are going to sin or hurt our feelings or offend us. Could even be me. Stick around. The expectation that not everything is going to be cool all the time, right? Forgiveness, like forbearance, is not necessarily being excited about it, but being able to anticipate the fact and deal in advance with the fact that someone's going to sin. Is anybody gonna sin this week? Well, I'm aware of it. Forgiveness is a way of life. It's not something you, you totally decide before you're offended. Forgiveness, you've already prepared for it in advance. Now it's just a matter of how am I going to do it? Not whether I am or not. How am I going to do this? Forgiveness. Expect it. This is review for a lot of you, and I've gone over this before. I want to go over three wounds on Jesus' body, and they kind of help you understand the different kinds of of woundedness that we have in our lives. Number one is surface wounds. We call them stripes. And Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. What is a stripe? It's the outer opening of the outer protective skin of the body. If, not, if left unattended to, the flesh that is pulled up from that open wound can come out. We can really get hurt bad on the inside if we don't tend to superficial wounds. Superficial wounds can kill us if we don't deal with forgiving and letting go. They mount up long enough, we're lacerated long enough, we're mutilated relationally long enough, we're verbally abused long enough, and it becomes the death of us if we don't learn how to let these things go. 
It is to your glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19 and 11. This happens all the time. We, we bicker, we argue, we disagreements. We've got to learn how to deal with these things so that these wounds can heal on the outside. You can reconcile with somebody. You can sit down. You can talk about it. You can share your feelings. You can ask for forgiveness. You might even receive forgiveness as well as extend it. By his stripes, we are healed. Second wound he had was a deeper, more bruising Crushing. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, some of us find in our relationships we're hurt with blunt force trauma. You can hear, you've heard these words. I want a divorce. Blunt force trauma. You lost everything in the market. Blunt force trauma. Even you hyperboles here. These stunning blows that, that go deep, that don't lacerate you, but they, all the blood collects around it and tries to heal it, tries to, and it's dark, and, it, and it's present, and it's sore, and it, it leaves you paralyzed or, or, or less mobile than you were. You're not as flexible as you were. You're hurt. You're, you're, like, you're like in the fetal position. Like, I, don't, I, I can't go on like this. I don't even know how to process this. I don't know how to get out of this. This was hard, blunt, force news. Crushed. Well, he was crushed for our iniquities. Our iniquities caused deep damage in him, spiritually and physically. We were the mallet on the body of Christ, our sin. We were the blunt force trauma. And now identifying with us, he knows that we experience blunt force trauma. He experiences everything that we do. The third is he was pierced for our transgressions. We're talking about the only thing that heals this particular wound is going to counseling and opening it up, identifying the dead tissue and cutting it out identifying what's left to move forward and allowing that wound to heal from the inside out. Piercings, the death blow, the, the sword that went into his pericardial cavity that caused water and blood to come out. That deep wound some of us have experienced in the innocence of childhood or our teen years when we didn't have any understanding or why someone would do such a thing or that you could even do such a thing to someone we had no knowledge of. Those deep piercing blows. He knows those too. The kind that you need someone else to help you walk through. You don't walk through that valley alone, my friend. You walk through with someone else you can trust. The piercings. Crushings. The stripes. Wounds that need irrigating the word of God, cleansing of the word of God, living water, the blood of Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Not only do they not know what they're doing, they don't know what, what they're doing is going to lead to something bigger, something deeper, something more extreme. I've never met a man or woman that said to themselves, today, 
as God is my witness, today I'm gonna start and I'm gonna be a chain smoker. Today I'm gonna be a chain smoker, I'm starting today. I'm gonna start out two today, four tomorrow, then eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. I'm gonna try to get up to 256 cigarettes a day. No one has ever said that. How is it then that we get to these extremes in our life? With the blunt force trauma. I never saw that I was capable of doing that. Everyone in this room is capable of any sin at any moment. I hope you know that. It comes down to this. Who is empowered? When it comes to forgiveness, it's, it's an empowerment issue. Who is empowered? John 10 and 18. No one takes it from me. It's Jesus speaking of his life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. As you receive the same command, your life is your business. You have the power to forgive and to release. You have the right to initiate that process. It's in your control. You can't be manipulated and told to do it. You can't be uh, hammered to do it. You can't be troubled to do it. It has to be in your time, in the power of the Spirit, you making a decision. I'm releasing that person who gave me that blunt force trauma. I'm releasing that person who pierced and put a hole in my heart. I'm releasing those stripes. I am forgiving. That's a process. It's not going to happen in 30 seconds. But it's your power to do it in the power of the Spirit. It's up to you. And it's up to you to also then follow up with appropriate boundaries. Because you forgave doesn't mean you're back to the square one like nothing happened. You have to protect yourself. You have good boundaries. You have stringent boundaries. You have no access to someone. You're empowered to do that. That's your right to do that. Jesus can lay down his life or pick it up. And everyone's saying, why doesn't he save himself? Because he was empowered to die. Consider those who have wounded you, friend. And consider those who you have wounded. What capacity did that person have that hurt you? What capacity did they have to understand? What did they know about what it was they did? Who taught them that? Who parented them in that way? Who hurt them in that way? You add all of this up in the context of a trusting relationship with a counselor, and you make decisions for your own good to release people and not have a bitter, embittered heart. Anything that you white knuckle, you're holding on. Too tight. I have a prayer here. It's got some blanks in it. I'm going to fill in the blanks for you. And as our worship team comes forward, we're going to get ready to close this service. I want you to write in these blanks. You might find better answers to work better for you. You might find sentences that you need to add in. I'm just getting you started. I want you to take this home. And if you have a need to forgive somebody, I want you to start the process. It starts with, I renounce bitterness and resentment and the limitations they cause in me and around me. As speaking to the Lord, you are my healer. Time is not. Time is not a healer. 
I'm sorry to disappoint you, you've heard that a million times. Time is a context in which Christ heals, but time does not heal. Christ uses time to heal, but time does not heal. Christ can heal without time, instantaneously. He's not dependent upon it. Time does not heal. Because a problem happened and you never addressed it for 20 years does not mean it's healed over. It does not mean there's forgiveness necessarily. You've got to process that. You are my healer, time is not. Vengeance is not mine, I release it. I am not God and I am not you, Lord. I renounce unforgiveness and I choose grace and mercy for myself and others. You forgive, I follow you. Help me, Lord, to forgive with a willing heart. How many times, you say? 70 times seven. I love you. Help me, please. Amen. There's a simple prayer. Make it yours. I'll leave you with this story. In his book, Lee, The Last Years, Charles Brasselin Flood reports that after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee visited a Kentucky lady who took, took him to the remains of a grand old tree in the front of her house. There she bitterly cried that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by federal artillery fire. She looked to Lee for a word condemning the North or at least sympathizing with her loss. After a brief silence, Lee said, cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. It is better to forgive the injustices of the past than allow them to remain. Let bitterness take root and poison the rest of our life. Don't do it. This was meant to get you started thinking about who it is that perhaps you owe an apology that you need to confess a wrong to, that you would ask that they forgive you and help you to repent. Just help you today to get started on the possibility that somewhere in your past you received stripes, bruises, piercings of a physical or emotional or relational or financial way. You were wronged. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. During this song, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, not yet in a friendship, don't yet know him, I'm gonna to return to this platform, explain very simply, and invite you to receive him if necessary, if needed. I want you to think about that. Amen.